Welcome to Sound and Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. The following recording is from a panel discussion at the Hunter MFA Studios that was recorded on March 23rd. This panel discussion was to honor the legacy of Robert Reed. This panel was conceived, as well as the workshop, by Kathy Brash, who is faculty at the Penn State University School of Architecture and who studied under Robert Reed. It involved myself as moderator, Kat Balco, Lisa Kareen Davis, Diana Mellon, and Enrico Riley. Robert Reed was incredibly influential to many art students and educators and taught at Yale for almost 50 years. His work were in the permanent collections of a number of museums, including the Whitney Museum, the Hirshhorn Museum, the Yale University Art Gallery, the National Academy Museum, the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in New Orleans, the Walker Art Center, and more. Here's our panel discussion. Hello everyone. Um, everyone got food? You're resting after your morning of activities. And uh, well, welcome, welcome to everyone who is joining us just now for the panel. And uh, everyone who was here for the workshops this morning, I hope that everything got off to a great start. The work looked amazing. The instructors doing an awesome, awesome job this morning. Um, and those of you who are just joining us now, when you have an opportunity, please take a look at the gallery. We have an exhibition about Robert Reed's pedagogy, as well as five of his um, drawings and collages. And um, I just want to really quickly welcome you and introduce, I'll start with the moderator and let it go from there. Um, so we have a panel today from one to two. Um, talking about Robert Reed's, uh, working with Robert Reed as a teacher and a mentor um, with a specific focus on thinking about the relationship between abstraction and identity, something that he had a really kind of dynamic relationship with in his own work. And uh, Brian Alford is here as our moderator. Uh, Brian has the, he's standing in front of the pool mics. Uh, Brian is an MFA graduate from Yale and um, is one of my colleagues at Penn State, teaching painting at Penn State, and um, which was his undergraduate. Very prolific painter and also a fantastic podcaster, uh, if you know his Sound and Vision podcast. So, um, and musician and soccer player and other, and dad and other cool stuff. So, <laughs> um, so we'll, get, we'll get started. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you everyone for coming out, and thanks Kathy for that casual introduction. It was really great, um, and for organizing this great workshop. It's been really cool to see the kind of uh, I'm I live here in Brooklyn, and I commute to teach at Pennsylvania three days a week. So it's been really great to see this migrate here from Pennsylvania and all the kind of like energy and action that has been going on around Robert Reed and his his legacy. So. Um, what I thought we could do this morning is each take turns introducing ourselves and kind of just if you guys could just give a little bit of a background to 
where you're coming from, what you do, and then how your path crossed with Robert. So. I'm Elisa Corin Davis. I teach here at Hunter College. I've been teaching here since 2002. And before that, I taught at Yale, where um, the first crit I ever gave included Enrico Riley to my right. <laughs> and the first full class of students was Brian Alfred. So it's really been a really lovely chain of the connected tissue of Robert uh, Reed here. Um, I met Robert at an exhibition that I had in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he um, had a residence. And he came to the opening and to the opening party. And he asked me if I was going to return to Charlottesville. I said, yeah, I have to come back to get my work at the end of the show. So we met, and he said, would you like to teach at Yale? So I thought that was a joke. So, uh, but thankfully it wasn't. And um, Robert really mentored me, um, offered me a summer class, then I became a replacement um, teacher for a year, applied for the job, and then spent um, seven years there teaching full time. Um, hi, my name is Enrico Riley. I'm a professor of studio art at Dartmouth College. Um, I've also been there since two, 2001. Um, I first met Robert um, in my interview for graduate school at Yale. Uh, he was one of my interviewees. Uh, and then I had a chance to study with him, um, which is a little different as a graduate student, um, a little bit different experience than uh, um, some of the other panelists who studied with him as undergrads. Um, but I had a chance to, to really interact with him for two years at Yale as a critic. Um, Lisa was at I think my last crit at Yale, uh, Brian and I overlapped uh, for one year um, at Yale. Um, and Kat was an undergrad, uh, she's an undergrad at Yale when I was there. So very sort of strange, strange web here. <laughs> so I'm Kat Balco. I teach as well at the University of Hartford's Hartford Art School. Um, I have the unusual lucky distinction of being one of the few students who worked with Robert both as an undergrad and as a grad student. Um, there were 10 years between those two experiences and it's a kind of a wild experience to have because um, when I was an undergrad I was really experiencing Robert as sort of the, the wizard in, in Wizard of Oz, kind of orchestrating the classroom experience which I benefited from and then as a grad student I got to see behind the curtain a little bit and to see kind of how he um, staged the incredible experiences that he created for undergrads. Um, I, I laugh now because although he, he very gently sort of forgot this, I was not his favorite student as an undergrad because I didn't work very hard and a lot of the qualities that he admires in students I didn't have at that point. But when I circled back to grad school 10 years later, I had changed a lot and I think it's part a testament to Robert's kind of heart that he... <laughs> welcomed me and, and became an, a critical mentor for me during the next period of my life. And I want to say that um, to complete this chain, <laughs> Diana was a student of mine when I worked with Robert in uh, Pontevin. <laughs> it's all connected. Um, so my name is Diana Mellon and um, I'm a PhD candidate in art history right now here in New York. Um, but as an undergrad, I also studied art um, 
at Yale with Robert Reed. Um, so I did this, the intensive summer program that Kat was an instructor at. Um, and there are some other people who were there that summer here in the room today. Um, and since then, um, I didn't have a lot of contact with Robert Reed um, after that. Um, but in the past year, I've been doing an intensive research project on his history and working with um, his wife, Susan, on that. Uh, so I've learned a lot that I didn't know um, through that research project um, from a different perspective. Great. Okay, so let's get right down to it. What I'd like to dig into first is what I feel like is Robert's unique teaching approach. Well, I don't even know if it was an approach, but just as a student, um, when I had a couple critique, well, a few critiques with Robert, they were different than everyone else's. And one of the main differences I noticed as a student, because I didn't really know anything about anything at that point, but um, he came into the studio and he sat down in a chair across from me, pretty close, pulled the chair up, and like looked me in the eyes, and he said, you know, what do you want to know, and what are you trying to do? And the thing that, it took me a long time, and I think it wasn't until I started teaching that I understood that he, for me, it seemed like he was leaving his work or his ideologies at the door, and he was really interested in figuring out what I was trying to, to get across in my work. Which, it, not to indict the program, but I think a lot of people come into your studio with their approach, which is good too, as you know, a student is to understand where teachers are coming from in relation to their own work. But he, I didn't really know about his work. I just, I really respected him as a teacher, and he, he really listened. So I wonder, because you all have different experiences with him, if you could talk about that kind of approach where it seemed that it wasn't about his work, it wasn't about the way he approached what he was trying to do, it was more about listening to you and, and trying to get you where you needed to be, which I think really comes, that became very valuable as a teacher to me, as to understanding like students that I'm speaking with. So, does anyone have any thoughts on that? I'll jump in. Um, one of the ways that Bob talked about teaching when, when you know, I had a chance to work with him when he put together his summer programs in Avalar and in Ponteven, um, the one that Deanna participated in was one of those. And uh, he, we wrote a lot of language to describe what the program was, and he would often say it's a, it's like a greenhouse, it's an incubator, it's a space for growth, and. Then he spent a lot of time building the structure out around the program. What was the physical space like? What um, were the materials people were using? Kind of what were their individual studio areas going to be? But the idea was really that everybody was sort of like a little plant, a little seed with their own um, kind of inner potential, and that and that he was going to build this incredible greenhouse for them to grow individually. It was never about teaching any kind of particular technique or program, um, which is you know. Quite, quite special. Yeah. Kat, what you're saying about the greenhouse metaphor makes me think of one of my favorite things that he asked us to do that summer, um, which was that he, one of the first things we had to do when we arrived and we found out where our studios were was we had to go out and find a plant somewhere outside, dig one up or buy one or somehow find a plant and bring it back to the studio and um, just keep it in the studio space. And he said that we needed to do this to come back to the studio. Like that, like if for, no, for nothing else, you would at least come back to water the plant. And so that kind of trick or structure for creating a studio practice, no matter what you end up doing, 
um, later on in your life um, seemed really important to him and he wanted like each person to be able to kind of I think find their way of making that for themselves within their practice yeah um, my, my sense was that well first of all Robert was a, a relatively mysterious person um, he was extremely open um, but there is a lot about him that many of us didn't know about unless you were extremely close to him there's a few people around who are very close to him uh, here. Um, uh, he and I had a lot of great, great conversations, but my sense was that um, your individual experience with him was going to be extremely different than everyone else's, because I think he did, as Brian was mentioning, did treat you as an individual and did not um, sort of come to you with a kind of agenda. Uh, I think he was really interested in having his students um, certainly at the sort of um, graduate level, um, he was really interested in having his students sort of uh, figure out where they were, try to express sort of where, where they were and what they wanted, um, and then tried to help facilitate that. So um, our conversations um, range from everything from Richmond, Virginia, where I grew up, to um, Kenny Burrell, a jazz guitarist, uh, who actually, he actually knew and got me tickets to go see uh, while I was at Yale because he, we talked about my own interest in jazz. Um, you know, there was a, the, the standard sort of formal kinds of talk that you'd have in the studio based on, on what you're looking at. But, um, you know, to me, Robert was uh, a real mentor in terms of setting an example of how one could be in the academy and be rigorous um, and be uh, uh, um, invested, but also um, leave space for other people. And I think he left space for the other faculty, and he left a lot of space, I think, for his students to, you know, to fill that in. Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly left space. So after that, you know, introduction into Yale, I was dropped into this university um, trying to figure out how to teach. You know, I'm a, I'm a young you know, um, barely green, very green teacher. And so, unlike everyone else here, I, I never studied with Bob, but I had to like watch like what was going on around me. So I would be teaching a painting class and these, these students, or a drawing class, and these students would come in and they'd say, my God, this teacher, first class, I've gotta do 50 drawings by the next class or 25 paintings, and they're like pulling their hair out, and I'm thinking, wow, why? Why was he demanding this kind of um, um, amount of work from these students by the second class? And so, so like, I, it, I learned after a while that Bob had a way of, of introducing students, I'm sorry, I'm gonna call him Bob, I can't call him Robert, so <laughs> forgive me, um, of introducing students um, to like the immersive quality of being making art and the discipline. So those are the two things I like could see from afar in the way that his students were working in the classes. And it's certainly something um, that I um, believed in. And I just want to add that like um, you know when you when and when you go to a place like Yale, right? Sorry, you Yaleys here, but. Um, you know, the art class is considered like the easy class, right? It's not like your pre-med class, it's not your bio class, whatever. So 
so he made sure that, that the same kind of seriousness of other um, pre-professional classes was given to students in those classes. Like he, he, he knew there was a value to learning art, no matter where you were going to go. And he, that discipline and that immersion that he insisted upon gave everyone this kind of um, bubble of a way of thinking and being that no matter what they went into in their professional lives, that he was still giving them something to, to of use value for going forward. Yeah. Um, I think I really responded to that kind of like blue collar approach to working, you know? Mm-hmm. And just the way I grew up, it was, you know, my parents were always saying, just do whatever you want to do, just work really hard at it. And I think he had that kind of, you know, I'm gonna take these new students and just put them to work because work is such an important part. And then I didn't really know his work that well, but as you know, I investigated his work, he was really rigorous about his practice. He would travel and make these you know, assemblages and collages like on the road, and he was very particular about his materials. And I'll never forget, I think my two years in grad school, again, no offense. I, <laughs> Are you he, insulting me? No, not at all. <laughs> um, he was the only teacher who actually taught me. <laughs> you, I mean, you taught me so much, <laughs> but <laughs> he's the only teacher who actually taught me something that was like a real thing with painting, because yeah. he came into my studio once and we talked, and then he came in the second time, he's like, you know these lines that you're painting and how they're like, they've got this really crappy edge to it? Do you want to fix that? And I was like, yeah, I do. Why? I don't know. He's like, oh, you just use matte medium first, and that seals it, and then you wait for that to dry, and then you paint, paint, and that was... A revelation for like years. I was painting with tape and it looked crappy all the time. But he saw that and he was like, oh, you want to do this in your work. This is how you do it. And no one else taught me stuff like that. But, um, well, almost no one. You, you <laughs> I, I did not. I, I, I'm happy. I mean, that's what made him great. That's yeah. That Kenny Burrell show was really good. I was there too, by the oh, way. Oh, were you there? Oh, yeah. Side note. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, so maybe we could transition between that a bit and to his personal experience and maybe his work because I've always been fascinated with you know with Robert's work I'll call him I can't call him Bob because I just he was my professor so with Robert's work and um, you know his personal kind of upbringing I know I've in the investigation that I've done I know that he titles works that have a relationship to growing up and you know there's a lot of identity in there but I don't exactly know that, but I wanted to know if any of you have insight into that or if you ever spoke to that. As everyone has said, he was a very mysterious person that was part of how, just a, just a really important part of who he was, but um, the, a few things come to mind. One is that he often told people, um, the first four letters of painting are pain, you know, it's a common <laughs> phrase, <laughs> and, and he was very good at sort of inflicting that a certain kind of pain on his students, right? You know, pushing students to, to an edge <laughs> of discomfort. Um, but the sense that painting was a place for emotional emotions to be processed, to be felt through, um, that it could hold that, I think was really central to him and his work. And I know that he, um, he was, his work is often very layered and incorporates components of his biography. So colors from schools that he was at or once talked about a, a piece of grill work, making it into one of his paintings as a kind of a swirl that was from a, a, an ironwork fence in a place that he stayed that was important to him. And I think just as a teacher, um, 
the layering, I think of an assignment that he gave to intro painting students where he would have students paint these four by four amazing still life paintings of this installation that they built and people labored over these paintings. They were just fantastic. And then he walked into class and said, okay, today get whatever color you have a lot of and just make a big splot right in the middle of that painting. You know, so just painting out this this thing that you've labored over and then put your portrait in front of it. You know, paint a self-portrait right in the middle of that painting. And that I think that kind of that to me speaks about a quality of character that the having the integrity and the kind of ability to say, like, I may have worked hard on something, but you know, it's it's over and I'm going to move on and I'm going to kind of re reinvent myself in this new way that I I I I think so much I think Bob is so much that way. Yeah, I get I I think that I wonder if that kind of like Mr. Miyagi like approach to like this is gonna hurt or it's gonna be really boring or you're not gonna wanna do this, but you're gonna learn something from that if a little bit of that might be lost these days in teaching, or there's this, like, you want everyone to be comfortable. But I don't know, growing up, I think that was a mentality, or there was a vibe when I was growing up that, like, if you want to do something, you have to work really, really, really hard at it. And I think he kind of had those, you know, qualities within him, you know, of, like, trying to get the most out of people through considering all aspects. But then when you studied under him, what was the class where you pretty... I mean, in your undergraduate experience, you took, what class was it? I took uh, Introduction to Painting, a two-semester class with him. Okay. Yeah. So it was like straight off the bat, people who were interested in art, and they had deep end of the pool of like oh, yeah. major work. First weekend, you know, you've got two days, you've got 50 paintings on cardboard, you've got to walk to this park that's like three miles away that you don't even never even heard of before. <laughs> you've got to somehow get them there and back. These are some paints, you may have never seen any, but, <laughs> but here they are. Um, and if you don't do that, you're, you've got kicked out of the class, so that was that. Um, you know, it's, I think the, I, I was thinking about this in the way here and, and, you know, the sort of helicopter parenting, which is a phrase we're all familiar with now, and how Bob was like absolutely the opposite of a helicopter parent. He like deliberately made it as hard for you as possible <laughs> in like outrageous ways. You know, build a dinosaur that's six feet high, fits in a box, can be assembled in 30 minutes, is only made out of cardboard and tape. I mean, that's so hard. Yeah. Um, but but that was clearly such an important part of his of his way. Right. Well, Enrico, you, I remember the work you were doing in grad, well, it's a while ago, so maybe yeah, yeah. it's a little blurry, but I, yeah. I think you were doing abstract paintings that were somewhat built off compositions of music, is that right? Yeah, they, yeah, they were. Which is a very specific kind of systemic, yeah. you know, beginning to a formal aspect of painting. Yeah. So there's his teaching with students who are just getting started and saying, okay, there's all this stuff you can do, try it all, work mm-hmm. through these ideas. I it's a personal question, but how was the interactions with him about his directing your work or, or talking to you about your work, which it was very, it seemed almost not hermetic, but you know, it was built on these systems. Yeah, I mean, I think between, um, uh, there, I mean, I had a lot of interaction with a lot of, a lot of different uh, people. And um, the thing about Robert, I would say, um, so he, well, first of all, I'll say um, uh, Jessica Tam, who's who's here. She wrote a wonderful article that's um, in Hyperallergetic, uh, the online magazine, that actually goes into some of the um, coded material in Robert's work. Um, but again, I think because I was at a, such a experimental stage in my own work, um, and I played a lot of music actually as an undergrad, so I was actually coming to painting. Temporarily, um, uh, in a different, in a di- from a different sort of angle, um, 
I think the slowness, the kind of slowness um, that the painting medium um, traditionally has held and can hold, I think that was very uncomfortable to me. So I was really navigating how can I make paintings in a way um, that approaches the kind of instantaneous uh, nature of music. Um, and uh, Robert was just really instrumental and really great with making me feel comfortable about going that direction. Um, he didn't really talk too much about his own um, underlying systems. Um, but, and he didn't talk about his, um, his sort of background or experience as an African-American, uh, you know, growing up in, in segregated uh, Virginia. But um, you got all of that from him. I mean, you, you sort of felt it. There was an intensity about him. Um, there was a kindness about him. But there was also this aspect that um, you knew he had experienced things. Um, and uh, somehow that sort of um, earned authority, uh, I think, just really gave you, gave me uh, the confidence to, um, to explore those really experimental uh, paintings that were, that were dealing with um, jazz compositions yeah. uh, and sort of translating and trans, uh, transcribing those into painting form. Yeah. Um, so, Lisa, you taught alongside him. Mm -hmm. What was... Because there's a certain relationship between a professor and a student to where some of that information, the personal information or right. the insight might not come out. I mean, mm -hmm. what was it like working alongside of him? I mean, it was no different. Bob was very private. I never saw a painting of his the entire time I was there. I, I had casual dinners or a drink with him where we would talk about um, things about the world, students at large. He never gossiped about students or faculty. Um, I mean, I have to try to put myself in the space of an African-American professor arriving at Yale in 1960, what was it? Um, 1969, right. And, um, and, and trying to establish some kind of authority as a professor and a voice gauging not to go too far and not to be too meek and, and all the things that go along with that. So I think that um, I, I, I don't know at all. This is all me thinking. Um, I think the studio, studio was a place of respite, you know. Um, I think it was a place that it was just too much to share your work and, and go into that classroom and, and deal with those faculty members who you knew. Um, there was a kind of ego around being a professor in the grad program at Yale. It was... Uh, it was, you know, art ego on parade, and students saddle up and come on my ride. And he never, never, never acted that way. He really um, saw his role as serious and almost private, and not about, you know, just um, um, his ego as an artist. Um, clearly, we all know now there was a lot, a lot of work going on and really incredible work, which you're only getting hinted at, you know, in that other room. Um, but I, but I, but I didn't. We didn't talk about those things at all. I knew he was there for me. I knew he knew the struggles I was having. Um, um, 
and I, 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 his support was very um, visceral for me, but, but there was no private conversation or art conversation in least. Never. Um, sorry. Do you yeah. Mind? Uh, do you, I think that is a testament to his teaching, right? Definitely. Because it took me a really long time after graduate school, maybe you can relate to this, but um, to realize in those critiques, which were, it was like a battle royale, you know? Yeah. That, that my work was just a pawn in the ideas of the, the battles that were going on. Sure. But that's good to hear because then you, you get ideas about your work from other people in the room thinking. But uh, I've, you wrote that really great memoriam piece in yeah. Art Forum, Art Forum, right? Art Forum, yeah. Yeah, and you had mentioned that in the critiques, like he would kind of sit back and just, I wonder if that's why, because he didn't want to get involved in kind of like angles and was maybe his more direct approach was in the studio having those one-on-one, which kind of yeah. makes sense. I mean, yeah, it was just my, um, I mean, when, when Art Forum said, write this, I'm like, I don't know what to write. I mean, like, I, like, I talked about all the privacy, but I, but I did have to think it back and think um, he, that, that kind of parading that you talk about was beneath him, in a sense. I mean, he was... Um, I think you know he was taking notes mentally about who to go talk to more about this or that, mm-hmm. or who he could mm-hmm. offer concrete advice to. He didn't need to strut like a peacock through the room mm-hmm. and think uh, I'm more affirmed as an artist because Brian's making work just like me. I mean that wasn't um, part of it. So that yeah, I think that um, ultimately his role and you know listen, let's let's face it, art education. You know those who can't do, teach, whatever that phrase is. Um, you know, he really took it, like, it was a calling. Um, it was, once you were in his orbit, you were always in his orbit. Like, mentoring went from the day he chose to mentor you for the rest of his life. I never felt, even once coming to Hunter, that my conversations were with him were not still him having my back and feeling very supportive of the work I do. Yeah, I, wonder, I can't help but wonder if the, his work, since it did seem to be very personal and it's coming from a personal place, a lot of the references in the work, if maybe that's why he wasn't as sort of like, you know, getting it out there or just, you know, working it as far as like, oh, here's my work, here's my, you know. But, Deanna, you have some insight into his work, correct? Yeah, so, I mean, when I was his student, I didn't even know what his work looked like. I had no idea. And I remember when I first saw it at the show at Yale, um, at his memorial, I was sort of like angry. I had this feeling of like, you never told us that this is what your work was like. This is incredible. Like, why, why wasn't this part of the conversations that we had? But it wasn't. And I think for all the reasons, the good reasons that we've talked about. Um, but in researching his work now and having seen a lot of it, um, there are, um, he, he worked in series, um, so he would create a kind of like container for um, work that he was doing maybe over 10 years. Um, and those became more and more referential to personal childhood experiences as he got older. Um, so he would title his works with oronyms, which are words that sound like something else. So he had a whole series called Tree for Mine, um, which was an oronym for three, four, nine, the numbers, because that was the number of his home in Charlottesville where he had grown up. His home was at three, four, nine, ten and a half street. Um, so there were, they were these references that 
something like that, nobody else will know. And he wasn't interested in, when he did show his work, he, did, he wasn't interested in explaining that kind of reference. Um, I think that some of the ornaments are really playful. Um, some of the references are, are funny. Um, I mean, he was also a very funny person. Um, we remember his severity, but I think everyone also remembers that he just was, he would, like in the moment when you were most terrified of what he was gonna say, he would come up with a joke and just totally catch you off guard. Um, so in his, in his work too, I mean, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of jokes. Um, and a lot of just like hidden references that I, like now having done like months of research and slowly starting to understand a little bit better. Um, but he did say uh, that that wasn't the, that wasn't the way that he wanted people to come to the work. He said that he wasn't interested in the most number of people being able to connect with the work. He said he was interested in how some people would maybe see visually what he was trying to do when they look at the work and they could maybe be interested in and have an experience with it. But it wasn't, um, he wasn't trying to kind of um, explain it for you. And um, he had like a, a solo show at the Whitney when he was quite young um, in 1973. Um, and there was a small catalog with an interview um, published for that show. Um, and in those works too, he felt that it was important that pe people understood in the catalog essay, uh, in the catalog interview, just that the title of the works, Plumbinelli, was referring to a specific experience that he had um, while he was mixing the purple for those works, um, where he was getting close to the color of purple that he wanted um, and he was trying to think of a title for the work as he was making it for the show, and he was sort of talking to himself, saying like, it's not quite there, it's not quite there, Plum Nelly. And he explained that Plum Nelly was an expression that like older people used in Charlottesville um, that he had heard growing up that meant almost or damn near. Um, so that kind of personal reference to something he had heard as a kid, he. He wanted that to be known about the title, but yeah, I mean, there was like a whole spectrum of personal references that you could come to know more if you keep looking at it or researching it. Yeah, I didn't research it, but the Hey, hey Bob Reebok, I think, is one yeah. of the titles. Like and there, there are many, yeah, there are many, um, Silas Green, um, which is referring to Silas Green, um, and there... So, I mean, some of them um, are nobody, like, there's nobody I've talked to who knows what they refer right. to, so, um, yeah. There's mystery, but it makes sense, there's mystery in the work, too, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they, these are all um, manifestations of, of Robert trying to survive, you know, as yeah. an artist, as a professor, as a human being. I, I think it's, you know, um, the work, and I think... Uh, him as an individual, um, it's really interesting to, to think about um, both as um, sort of symbols for, for survival. And, and I think we all are trying to figure out how do we survive in the studio? How do we make work? How do we hold down a job? How do we stay engaged in the work? Or, you know, all the various things that we're, we're dealing with as artists. Um, and... Uh, yeah, again, I think the way he, he interacted with his students, I think the way that he interacted with other professors, and, um, you know, now, uh, learning all this new information about his work, um, my, my intuitive feeling is that 
he was trying to manage a lot and he was trying to survive and continue to paint and to continue to paint at a high level. If that meant not showing it to people, if that meant coding, you know, coding a lot of the content, um, you know, for himself and for the public, then that's what he figured out he had to do. Um, and uh, I really admire him because he, he painted for a long time and he taught for a long time. Yeah. And thinking about his work, I mean, I'm sure, you know, at some point, whether it was earlier on or recently, fairly recently, um, and you dig into his work, what do you guys think of his work and how it fit in at the time, how it fits in now? Because I honestly feel like there's a lot of work that I've seen that just feels so, like, right in a pocket of today, in a way. But, like, how do you, what do you think of his work? I, when I look at his work, I think it's, it's quite elegant. You know, he loves some decorative forms, sort of the swirls and flourishes, um, and but he often uses really ordinary materials, cardboard and tacks and kind of rough paper. Um, I think there's a quality of Bob, and this I, I, this is something just I've taken from him, from working with him that I find so remarkable. He he is his ethic of kind of making do with what you have, making something fantastic about what's in front of you is is in his work and is so transformative, um, has been so transformative for me, and I think as a teaching tool, it's so transformative. He, um, you know, when I started teaching, I realized that, like, most teachers have syllabi. <laughs> it's, like, a very standard thing for a teacher to have. I'm sure Bob has never once in his entire life had a syllabus, um, completely counter to how he teaches. It's not that he doesn't, he, you know, he prepares more than anybody I've ever known, but the preparation is very different. He, it's about setting the space, you know, um, kind of imbuing materials with a kind of um, intentionality, but, you know, but the idea that you would show up in the classroom, take what's in front of you, and make something amazing happen that is, is all is what Bob's entirely about, and I, you know, I see that in his work and in his, um, in his teaching as well. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I, mean, I, I think um, in the contemporary sort of landscape of art making, um, you know, there, there might be uh, I, you know, which I think is a subset of the society in general. I think there's a blurring of boundaries, um, and um, I think uh, artists, um, and this is just a generalization, but I, I think there's a way that there is so much variety in the way that people are making work now. Um, first of all, that I think is expressed in the range of Bob's work. Um, I think there's a directness to his work that is extremely contemporary. Um, and I think the sort of, again, wrestling with the formal and the and issues of identity um, uh, is extremely contemporary, you know? And I think you have to look at where he's coming out of, too, coming out of Albers, coming out of um, a very sort of formal, formalist, almost systematic um, kind of education and environment. Um, but he was holding, you know, he was trying to hold on to this personal side uh, to his expression, so. Yeah. Didn't he mix some of the paint for the Albers interaction of color? Yeah. yeah. I thought I would, yeah, yeah, it's he, pretty amazing. Yeah. He had to, um, so his job was to mix the colors um, that would be, and to record the exact proportions and the formula that he had mixed so that that would be sent to the silks screen company that would print the plates for the book for Interaction of Color. 
So Albers would look at what he was mixing um, compared to the like prototype that Albers had given him and check if the colors matched. Um, but he had to he had to standardize the color into a formula for the printing company. Um, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. Yeah, but like if you think about coming out of studying under Albers, um, you know, with a school that's formal and abstract, and um, and that's the language of painting that you're learning. Um, I mean, there was no room then, and there's still very little room right. for African American artists to do abstract work. Right. And so, so back to the privacy. Well, you know, um, there was a show at the Whitney in 71, the title of which, I'm, I have to look at my notes because I can't remember, um, was, um, oh God, what was it? Does anyone know? Um, Are you talking about contemporary black artists in America? Contemporary black artists in America. So the Whitney was going to put on this show, and it caused a riot because um, the board and those people around the museum did not understand um, black artists making abstract work. They were fully capable of understanding black artists doing representational work, um, you know, taking up the cause, um, fighting the fight. And, um, but, but the idea that black artists would do abstraction kind of like caused some weird moment where there was a lot of, a lot of um, pushback and the show was problematic. So, um, that still exists to today. I mean, if you look at your top um, African-American artists, they are mostly representational painters. Some of them went to Yale, like Kahindi Wiley. Um, so, um, um, and you know, just even this week, um, personally, I had a um, curator in a museum present my work. I'm an abstract artist, and to several panels for purchase, and he called me up in complete frustration because he said that he, he still has a hard time talking uh, museums into buying African-American work that's abstract. It's 2019. So, so, um, so, so, you know, so African-American artists are put into the position to talk about the problem, right? Um, to talk about ourselves. Um, I mean, white artists are not asked to talk about whiteness in their work, and so, um, so yeah. I mean, I think there's more room for Bob's work now, and it, the beautiful complexity, the way that those of us, I think, who work in abstraction, um, try to find formal ways to talk about our personal condition or subjectivity in the world, mm -hmm. but um, but are not feeling that we are that politic or want to talk about groups at large, want to make it more subjective. Um, and Bob's work was certainly that from the titling that you're talking about and from, I think, the manners of making, the, the touch, the, you know, the materiality of many of the work, the color. Um, but so it, he, could, he could show it more now and it would be more accepted, but I still think there's a real problem in this zone as far as, um, you know, abstraction for black artists. Yeah. I, um, it's striking when you try to find, like, a large group of black artists. Like, if you were to curate an abstract show, right. 
I thought about that. And Enrico like, and myself. Four others. And I think that happens with, I talk a lot to other artists, too, younger artists, about how that happens a lot in other minorities as well, where like, you know, a Japanese artist is like, oh, it doesn't look like Takashi Murakame, why that? You know, right. it's like there's a whole other, you know. Right. But I think it's the desire for people to kind of like compartmentalize, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. right. And for right. some reason that's still okay in the art world to kind of do. But yeah, it's not it's a, okay. and also it's simple, not, yeah. kind of blend stories together into one simpler story. And right, then, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So that, I mean, to think about him at that time doing what he—it's just admirable. Yeah. yeah. You know, to and just the conditions around, like you were saying earlier, teaching there at that moment and when right. he first started, and uh, it, there's like layers of admiration. Sorry, were you? Gonna say? I was just gonna say that I think also he really didn't, he had a very clear vision of like how he wanted his work shown and he wasn't, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that he often had the opportunity to show it in the way that he wanted to. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't someone who was going to kind of compromise on certain things. Like he was really very exacting about many of the conditions that he wanted around his work. And I think that also is a reason why the work just like people haven't seen it that much in the intervening decades even though he has work in some major museum collections it doesn't get it didn't during his lifetime get shown very often yeah mm -hmm. Enrico what are you going to add to um, I was just just wanted to talk a little bit about abstraction and um, you know my my personal work has shifted uh, it's slightly more figurative at this point now, but um, I was basically trained through abstraction, and um, I can't help but to think of, um, I think it's a really complicated um, topic, and, and I'm glad Lisa um, brought it up, because if you think about um, hard bop, or bebop, and you think about the abstract nature of that music um, and what it came sort of after, much more danceable uh, kind of jazz music um, that had a much more intact kind of melody, much more user-friendly. Um, in a lot of ways, I think, uh, in particular, African-Americans have, um, some African-Americans have thought of abstraction as um, a kind of resistance and as a kind of um, doorway out of a, a, a certain kind of expectation. So, um, you know, to me, historically, uh, there is a huge um, uh, relationship and importance between um, uh, the African American experience, specifically, and abstraction. I think it, it moves to all groups, it moves to all people, but I think in particular there's something about the African-American experience and abstraction that's, um, that's really sort of wedded. Uh, now, um, it sort of brings up the issues of the kinds of narratives um, that are preferred maybe by the marketplace um, for the reasons of being able to be um, sort of organized, uh, or easily identified, um, and I think at, at this point, my my feeling is that um, there's a variety, and um, there's a variety of ways that people make work, and uh, just because 
uh, a work is in an overt, um, abstract kind of language, uh, and it might be slightly harder, quote unquote, slightly harder to uh, to penetrate. Um, the people who are in uh, sort of in charge of curating, um, uh, choosing work, putting on exhibitions, all you know, uh, uh, moving, circulating the work um, uh, in the public spaces and into private spaces. Um, I think there has to be just more robust conversation around around it, around the work, um, and not simply allow uh, overtly abstract work to. Um, uh, uh, to remain sort of opaque or um, to hold on to that veneer, um, veneer of being opaque or inaccessible. And again, I think Robert, um, to me, I think his relationship to abstraction, um, I can't help but to think of music. I mean, it's my own, um, it's my own bias, but I can't help but to think of this kind of uh, very engaged, coded, organized, um, uh, system relationship um, uh, that um, I mean music is extremely abstract we don't expect Beethoven to write a symphony and for us to have some visual image of of, of, a, of a you know of, right. a, you know, of a buildings or people or whatever it's just music is is inherently abstract and why can't uh, visual art be accepted on those terms um, and uh, in some manifestations, so um, so I just wanted to, mm -hmm. to to flush that out a bit. It's funny, real quick, that you mentioned that because in my mind, when you before you even mentioned music, I was thinking about that, like the Donald Birds of the world who made the more accessible dancing stuff, and then you had Sun Ra and Anthony Braxton, right. and Anthony Braxton, someone that I would, you know, think of like a relationship to Robert's work in a way where it's kind of geometric, yeah. it's exploding out this system of drawing into three-dimensional space, and he made drawings for his compositions, you know? Mm -hmm. So that it's, but that stuff sometimes gets categorized on the side as out or avant-garde, but I think, like Sun Ra, and talking about the black experience right. of wanting an escapism right. and to get lost in your own kind of, right. you know, world right. was very political and very tied to, you know, that experience, I think. Right. And I would imagine maybe that's where his sense of, I can only imagine, but where his sensibilities might have veered towards right. in the relationship right. to representation and abstraction. But what do I know? I know, I know. <laughs> this might take this point in a slightly different direction, but I'm thinking about um, the independent project, which we've talked about, is always really a staple of Robert's teaching. He always had students work in independent projects. and. Basically, that or independent investigations was what he called them, and so you would start with something that was really personally significant to you, that was critical, and then you would basically just make like a, a 300 paintings or drawings of beginning with this source. And uh, when I was working with him in Pontevedra, one student was working with this fear that she felt when she walked across a field in the middle of the night, and she was from the city and she was living, you know, now temporarily in this rural place, and, and looking up at the open sky was frightening. And so he had her draw that fear over and over and over again, and it kind of became this abstract form, this sort of arcing form with a stripe in the middle. And, um, and it, I, I took from that this kind of insistence that abstract work be really rooted in something very specific and personal, um, but that wouldn't necessarily be narrative or have a particular, or be, be legible in, in the way that um, we might expect it to be. And that seems to translate into Robert's work as well. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to open it up to to any ideas, insights, comments, or you know anything that you guys wanted to to add before we open it up to questions. Is there anything you guys wanted to further add? Okay. okay. So, is it Kathy? Is it okay if we leave some moment? I'm not sure if anyone does have any questions, but yes. I was curious for Diana what the conditions were that Robert Reed wanted his work to be shown. Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't think I can give a comprehensive answer. Um, but what I've seen, um, things like the height of all the works, the spacing, the exact order of the works, curatorial decisions um, like that, um, the, the text that would be in the space with the work, including like the text of his name on the wall of the shows, had to be a certain way, certain font, certain size, um, certain height on the wall. Um, and then also definitely the way that the work was framed in any kind of text that accompanied the show. So a catalog or an, es an essay that was on a pamphlet with the show. He wanted to know, including press releases um, for the Whitney press release. I saw the archival material where he's giving feedback on, he doesn't want it to say abstract expressionist. He doesn't want certain terms used. Um, so. The way that the work is framed verbally was also really important. Um, in some shows, he had plants in the show. Um, yeah, and then other things like the um, institution, making sure that the institution was taking care of the work in terms of like safety and picking it up and that kind of thing. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, I, I wanted to mention your discussion about the pressure on African American artists to do figurative work and not to do abstraction. Um, I had the privilege of studying with Norman Lewis, mm -hmm. and he wow. spoke about that all the time. Mm -hmm. And he actually received more pressure from fellow black artists about the fact that he was selling out to do abstraction. Mm -hmm. And Norman was very much involved with jazz. Mm -hmm. and wanted that in his paintings. He wasn't interested in painting figures sitting in a room or what have you. So it, it, that whole generation lived under that kind of pressure. Yeah. He wasn't alone. Robert was alone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I just, you sort of, I guess, touched on this in, in a few ways, but I just wanted to give you guys the follow-up in terms of how he uh, Negotiated or um, engaged failure in the context of pedagogy. So, for, I've heard the story of 50 drawings in the weekend so many times, but this idea that the people who didn't do the 50 drawings, like, how did he kind of negotiate situations like that? Was it just like he didn't talk to them? Was he like, I can answer that. Because, like, now I've been teaching and the students, sometimes it's, there's this question about are you working too? How do you deal with yeah. It? And so, just how did he engage that? Well, I think he had a, a really keen instinct for the context in which he was teaching, and he had a sense of how much he could push and how much he could get in that context. But that said, you know, um, certainly at, at Yale, he would kick people out of the class if they didn't do the drawings, but or paintings. But but it, you know, I did them. I did not do them well. Some of them probably took me thirty seconds. <laughs> you know, there's a. He was remarkably generous when it came to the 
kind of the content of the work, which was so, he was so strict and structured in certain ways, but then he was so accepting and generous um, in ways that other teachers would not have been, you know, in, when he actually got into the, the meat of what you were really working with. I mean, again, I don't know, I was never in his class, but um, I mean, this all has to do with a kind of respect, right? Like, he needed respect, um, he respected the institution in which he worked, Someone, I'm not sure it was you, told me a story. I, I don't know why I into this, but I have the same thing. Do not show up one second late for my class, right? Just don't do it, right? Um, I, I heard that he would ask you first, um, are you okay? Um, did anything happen? Is your family okay? And he'd go through this list of questions, like reasons that you might be late for class. And if you said no to all of those, then he would terror. <laughs> Like tear out, like like you know, go to the like ah, zone. But but it was like um, you know, I, I I think that Brian kind of alluded to this. Like why? I mean, everyone shouldn't be an artist, right? It's really hard. It takes a kind of dedication, and 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 so why not start it there? Is my opinion. And um, and but there's a compassionate way in order to instruct that discipline. And when I heard that story this morning, I thought. He's so much better than I am. I just start shouting with right away. But he's, you know, he goes to the correct paces. To it's a good do this. idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think he also felt like he wanted us to know, like, this is serious work. So he's taking it seriously. Even he would dress up for class mm-hmm. in a really, like, a way that was very kind of professional, almost the way you would think of for a job that isn't in a studio, um, with a jacket and maybe a bow tie. And um, he, I think, wanted to just by example show college students he was working with, like, this isn't just your art class that you're taking for fun. Um, you have to take this seriously if you're going to be in the classroom. Yes. Yeah, I have a comment his method of dealing with students who wouldn't follow the, where the assignment was. And uh, it was quite shocking to me, uh, not only in terms of the amount of work that he was assigning, which as SSTA, I had to kind of follow up with and participate in the critique of the work that would come back into the studio. And it was um, a really great learning experience for me as a young you know, graduate student to see that not only in, as far as the seriousness of the endeavor goes, but also the expectation of oneself, and that this is a responsibility, you know, you're in this class, and you've really set the bar so high mm-hmm. that um, if you didn't, um, you know, succeed in at least attempting to do the 50 drawings, and I was tasked, unfortunately, at very spontaneous moments where he would leave the room, and I was the one who had to kick the person out because they didn't fulfill the assignment. So I learned very quickly how to do that, and as bad as I felt sometimes, it was a really necessary part of that learning experience. It was quite valuable. I just wanted to say one thing, since we're talking about this assignment so much, the 50 drawings or the 50 paintings, um, the story about how that assignment came to be, which Jenna is nodding over there, is that he actually had to go leave a classroom with his teaching assistant to go to an important event, family event, and he said, um, have them do, you guys will correct me, have them do 
five, five drawings? 15, 15 drawings. 15. But his teaching assistant misheard him and thought he said 50. <laughs> <laughs> and so the teaching assistant said, okay, everybody do 50 drawings by Monday. And then when, when Robert came back and he saw that everyone had 50 drawings, he was like, I had no idea. That's great. It's going to be 50 from now on. So. <laughs> yes, in the back. You know, the, he, he, the first thing I would say is he took undergraduate work so seriously and he gave it the space and he always gave it a lot of space and time. So critiques would, would maybe, you know, a full period, students would, get, would have a, you know, a huge amount, a lot of time for, for their work. Um, and then he, um, you know, he, he was never, I think he was always looking for the openings in the work, what the next, what the next thing might be, the hints of the work to come. He always saw the work as part of a process of evolution, and, and the point of a round of work was to see what the next, where you could start the next round of work from. You know, I think if, if that's the way you're teaching, you, you hopefully you're really sensitive to, to those thresholds where, where it moves into something traumatizing. But um, um, I, think it, I think naturally it's hard for humans to push themselves to a point where they break through into um, a place that they might not have known they could go. And um, it's really helpful, and you're really lucky if you run into people who challenge you in the appropriate way and actually sort of help you to understand who, who you are and your, your own capacity. Um, Robert was always extremely gentle to me, and maybe it was something that I gave off as a, stu- as a young graduate student, um, but he was, more than anyone else, he was extremely, um, he was just very gentle. And we had these very gentle conversations. So I never experienced um, uh, that kind of, um, you know, sort of what you're talking about sort of firsthand. And I, and I think it was something that less the graduate students probably experienced. But um, 
but again, I, I, I knew just in the timbre of his voice, there was something that I, that I, I knew was, um, I knew he knew some kind of pain. I, I knew he had experienced something. I didn't know what, but I could tell from his voice um, that there was a lot of authority in, in, in his voice. And uh, it made me sit up straight. Even though he was very gentle, it made me um, take the whole thing very seriously. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a communal group effort to try to get us to be uh, as good as we can get. And, and none of us are perfect, and sometimes it spills over in the wrong side. Um, you know, sometimes it doesn't spill over enough. And uh, I think everyone should be afforded those that kind of... Um, uh, range of possibilities of outcome, but um, but you know, I think for the people who did experience it, I think there probably was a new level of yeah, <laughs> self awareness. I think I don't think he was ever intending to inflict pain. Like I don't think that that's how he would have thought of it. Um, I think that pain came up for a lot of us in response to what he was asking us to do because we had maybe an idea that our work should look a certain way or that it shouldn't be this difficult like emotionally to work on it or whatever our idea was um, would come up against the structure that he had put in place for us and the demands that he had asked of us and that can cause a lot of pain I think that at least for him and I, I don't know if it makes sense or is productive to teach this way now but for him um, he had a lot of authority. I mean, he was like a celebrity for us as undergrads, and we had heard about his class, and we knew what we were getting into, and I think the people who signed up for it already had a kind of predisposition to work in that way or be interested in having that kind of experience on some level, um, and also we trusted him. There, like that, If there isn't trust, you're not then it becomes abusive. I mean, it becomes something else. But I think that we trusted that he knew what he was doing and that he had that sensitivity that you're talking about. Um, I definitely think that people learn in different ways and that the way that he taught might, I'm sure, was not the way that everyone needed to be taught or that benefited everyone the most in that moment. But um, I think for many people it did accomplish this thing of pushing them beyond what they thought they could do. And that in itself, especially at that age, was incredibly important. Just wanted to say quickly to jump off of what was said, um, that I think so much of it had to do with who he was. And I've tried to teach that way, and have, it's been a disaster. I've gotten no results, and <laughs> the students didn't do the work I asked for anyway. Um, and, you know, it's because I, I don't, that's just not who I am as a teacher. And there was something about his character, his life, his own history that allowed him to teach from that place and, and be very effective at it. Yeah, I was going to say, um, not everyone survived his classes. I mean, so I only heard the stories again. And there were people who thought that was insane. I had to drop out. I, it was, like, not for me. And um, as far as pedagogy, I think like any good professor only goes into the room with what they know. And, and, and that, that knowledge that they have about making work um, becomes their belief system. And then you act out that belief system in the classroom. And you can't, 
Um, it might not be for everyone, but um, um, but it'll be for the people who can assess that and and learn from that. But um, he he certainly wasn't cruel, and and he's uh, very kind. But that kind of discipline was his survival tool, and uh, and he brought that in like this was worked for me. I'm going to deliver it to you. And for some people it was yes, and for some people it was no. So um, um, yeah. And um, just to add one last thing, I think that I wasn't in those classes. I only dealt with them on a one-to-one basis. But I think the overarching idea under that is when you're developing and you're young as an artist to diversify the way you think about making work, getting out of your comfort zone uh, forces people to think outside of their na- their whatever comes naturally to them or what they've been told. So that, that kind of diversification of your practice or the way that you're thinking about things can only kind of make you stronger later on as an artist. Sorry to put the stamp on the <laughs> But um, so I want to thank everyone. Oh, okay. for, sorry. sorry, I was trying to mind to you. I think just one more comment. Uh, oh, there's think. another comment. I thought you were oh, like. One, one more student. <laughs> I just wanted to add to this idea about uh, Robert's pedagogy. I TA for him. And, um, you know, the thing that I always remember is that he kept everybody on their toes. Mm-hmm. And, and I was on my toes as a TA. The students were on their toes. And it was, it's almost that feeling you have when you walk down the stairs at night and you think there's one more step than there actually is, and you're kind of awake to it. And I think that his keeping you on your toes in that way, and sometimes it was intense, um, made you aware of what was happening in the present moment. And it's like, be awake to what's happening right here, right now, with this group of people, you yourself. And it was, it was really a culture in the classroom. And um, you never knew what was going to happen. He didn't have a syllabus, as you mentioned. As a TA, I didn't know. He'd call me up and say, no, I'm doing this. And you had to be ready to go there. And um, if you went there, it was completely exhilarating. And I think that that's so much about his own work was that way. I think he built his own work that way. And his relationship to students and TAs and, and the process of art making uh, was absolutely about being on your toes and being awake to it right now. I think that um, it might not be for everybody, but you know, it was certainly hard for some students because it was uncomfortable. You couldn't sink into formula at all. You had to, you had to be present to a kind of open experience. And he did, you know, yeah, I, you know, somebody who was not doing the work, you know, they, they were gone. <laughs> Before we end, Kathy, could we have all the TAs in the room just stand up so we can just see who you are? I'd just be curious. Like, I mean, look at the generations. Oh, my God. Look at that. Okay. And wait, wait. Keep standing. Uh, keep up. And then, like, could we have all the former students of Robert Reed stand up, please, so to see who you are? So. Okay. Thank you. That's great. Thanks a lot. So I think the theme is we, we kind of feel that our world is a little you know, less sunny or, you know, it's like, it would be great to still have him here, but obviously, like, the way he taught and the values that he instilled in people is still with so many of us, and that's really kind of a legacy. You know, his artwork there, too, but having both of those things is a really amazing accomplishment, I think. And it's it's so great to have this kind of, you know, um, remembrance of him and the acknowledgement of how it can move into the future, which it's doing today with all this great stuff. So 
thank you everyone here, all the panel, please give them a round of applause. And big thanks, a big thanks too to Kathy for organizing the event. Thank you all so much.